liturgy and ritual gives us an opportunity to be in relationship with life, you know, to be Mm, in relationship, you know, with observation, you know, that a house isn't just some inert pile of bricks, you know, it's like, there are relations, you know, that we are in relationship with our, the space that we're in with the land that we live on. And I think that ritual and liturgy gives us an opportunity to experience that, not just to kind of like name and acknowledge it, but to actually have the experience of that body it, to feel it. Listening to the Ritualist Podcast, where an ex Buddhist monk and a former Catholic explore the power, pleasure, and mystery of spiritual practice outside of institutional religion. I'm Shane the Catskills, an artist living at the intersection of social justice and spirituality, who spent a decade living in a Zen Buddhist monastery before re entering lay life in 2019. And I'm Peg Conway, a writer, energy healer, and motherless daughter. I anchored myself in the liturgical rhythms of the Catholic Church for my entire adult life until I just couldn't anymore. In today's episode, we launched the podcast with the story of how we came to be having this conversation in the first place. We also reflect on our formative experiences with ritual and liturgy in our respective former traditions. Hello, Peg. Hey, Shay. I'm so excited to finally be here in this time and space with you. Me too. This is a uh, auspicious moment for us. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so how are you arriving to this moment? I am arriving slightly flustered. It's been a busy day here at our house with some things related to our recent move and dealing with furniture and all that logistics things, but they have, they have worked themselves out. And so I'm, I'm feeling great, like grounded again. I love you. I love that. I am, um, have also had kind of a scattered morning, um, moving faster than I like for no reason, except just a a kind of internal speediness. I think a lot of it, um, was anticipation about having this first conversation together and recording and all of it. I've been thinking a lot about this conversation and like, here we are actually about to have it. Um, So I'm arriving. It feels really good to like be here finally and doing the thing. Um, So a nice mixture of, of a little nervous, a little excited and feeling more grounded um, by the moment. So, so that feels really good. Um, There is that sweet spot where nerves and excited meet and it's really good. If there's too much nerves, that's not good, but I think we're, we're at that sweet spot. I think this is the effect that you and I have on each other, actually, when we get together to talk, which is actually a a perfect transition into how we came to be having this conversation with each other. Um, Maybe we should talk a little bit about how we actually met, which um, is through the Way of the Rose community, um, which is the way that I describe it to people, because it's a rosary fellowship and people hear rosary and they think Catholic and it is not a Catholic fellowship. It's actually not affiliated with any institutional religion. Um, I tend to describe it as an animist, anarchic, eco-feminist 
Rosary Fellowship founded on the non-hierarchical principles of AA, because that's how I sort of find myself in it. Um, it's a community that exists on Facebook very actively and is probably one of the reasons I'm still on Facebook. It's a community that exists online in the form of daily meetings that happen at all hours of the day. And so how I actually met you was during um, the early part of the pandemic. Was it 2020 or 2021? No, it was during, um, I think it was the, the months of the lockdown, like the summer, late spring of that, because that's when I first began participating in Way of the Rose. And by the way, it is really difficult for me to describe. I'm, I'm glad you have a definition in mind, because for me, coming from you know lifelong Catholicism, I have to describe it in what it is not more like, I have to sort of like, well, no, it's not that it's not that. And I actually, this is huge. I actually don't talk about it in public all that often, except with my close friends. Yeah. I mean, I feel so like non-Catholic that it doesn't really even occur to me. I always think, you know, the rosary doesn't belong to Catholics or even Christians. And yet like in the culture, it most certainly does. And so, yeah. And that is one of the things I was drawn to about way of the rose. And, uh, you know, there's a book by that name, by, Clark uh, Strand and Perdita Finn. And that's kind of how I found my way there. And the description of the rosary as indigenous, as Europe, white Europeans, it's our indigenous practice. That, that spoke to me extremely loudly. As well. And it does connect me to my ancestors, my mother, my grandmothers were, you know, rosary is very much ingrained in my family history, but I, it never stuck with me. That's so interesting. So many things you just said just sparked, you know, I remember when I finally read Way of the Rose, it had been recommended to me by a couple of friends that I knew from the monastery, both men, incidentally, and I was very resistant at first to reading it. And then when I finally did, it felt like just like slipping into the most comfortable sweatshirt you've ever put on in your life. It just um, was such a good fit. And, you know, my grandmother is still alive. She just turned 96 and she oh prays. Yeah. She prays the rosary. And oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, my dad went to Catholic school and he prayed the rosary in English and in Polish. And so I've learned the rosary in Irish and in Polish, and it does feel like a real connection with my sort of family lineage. And um, so, so you and I met because we attend um, Zoom rosary circles where sort of the format is we get together, it's an hour long meeting. And it's kind of, it's very much like, you know, um, in the sort of format of uh, recovery meetings in the sense that there's someone who anchors the meeting, who like opens the Zoom room and kind of facilitates, reads the meeting description and just keeps things moving according to the structure, but that can be anybody. And um, we essentially um, get together, we pray the rosary together. Um, people can like make up their own versions of the prayers and then we, um, make our petitions for our heart's desire. And then we usually invite in the dead and pray a decade for the dead and close the meeting that takes about an hour. So you and I met in these online rosary meetings where we were literally praying the rosary together and, and petitioning for our heart's desire. And when I think about how intimate that actually is, um, it's not surprising sort of the connections um, that we've made. And you and I in particular, 
um, attending kind of the same rosary meetings and, and starting to have some conversations about ritual and liturgy is really kind of, I think, how we landed here. Yes. And I remember before I ever had any like personal interaction with you, like I always admired the way you phrased your prayers, like you were always very succinct and have a used distinct vocabulary, which of course, coming from not a Catholic background, that would be easier. I mean, it would be natural for you to have a different vocabulary than me, because I'm constantly having to un unpack some things or just like consciously release, like, no, that's not my understanding or, you know, oh, yeah, that was kind of what I grew up with, but that's not really what I'm here for. Um, I don't remember when, how did we happen to schedule a zoom just for the two of us, like to well, chat? I just never met it really in person. No, we're about to soon, well, yes. but yes. Um, I was just thinking about this. Um, and also just um, what you said reminds me that like so many people in way of the rose are people who come from different institutionalized religious traditions. And many of them have cast off those traditions and landed, you know, so that it's a kind of a ragtag group. There are people in the community who are still inside of a particular religious tradition too. Um, but I just kind of wanted to say that, but how we actually got chit-chatting was I was anchoring a Wednesday evening, 15 mystery rosary, and you showed up for um, the meeting and you were the only one who showed up. And so you and I just decided to have a little chit-chat together, you and me, during the sort of time that we would normally be praying the rosary. And it did was- we, Did we not pray the rosary at all that night? I think we, I think this happened a couple times. And I think one time we actually prayed the rosary. I think we did pray because I remember thinking like, we don't have to, but you were like, let's pray. And I was kind of like, okay. I but was thinking we, you would think we should. <laughs> I love that so much. Well, and plus if someone else showed up late and we we're sitting around talking about praying, I think that's part of what I was thinking about. <sighs> That's great that we both think it could have gone either way. And in any event, we ended up chit-chatting and realized that actually we love to chit-chat about things. There was so much to talk about. There was so much kind of juice in the connection. And I think that that's ultimately what led us to thinking like, huh, what would it be like to actually have this conversation in a more structured way? Um, and wondered if there were people who also could relate to some of the um the things that we were talking about in terms of ritual and liturgy. And particularly outside of organized religion in the sense, because like, I find as much as I love Way of the Rose in every way, I also find that it, the sheer diversity and, um, and the embrace of individuality can be overwhelming to me at times because I come from such a culture of conformity, you know, that the ritual is this way. You're supposed to say these words. You're supposed to have these gestures. And much as I, you know, intellectually relinquish, you know, kind of have never been dogmatic about things like that. At the same time, there is this, I think organized religion encourages us to think things have to have a consistent form in order to be effective or correct. And, you know, there is, I can see there, I, I think there is some value in a shared process that's familiar that people can access. But at the same time, my experience and, and you have, have in, uh, your, these conversations that we've had personally have 
invited me to think about ritual more broadly and more specifically, more tiny and big, like mm. it, and find the, the connection back to my prior life. Like the, I felt such a severing when I stopped going to church that I felt it had to be that way. I felt right about it, but it was painful. And now I, I'm feeling like I'm knitting some threads. Like I feel more continuous with my past self. Oh my God. I love that. I love that. And when you, when you were just talking about like, um, that when you come from a in institutional tradition, there tends to be this kind of conformity. It makes me think of the first rosary meeting that I ever went to was Perdita's 5 PM meeting on Sunday. And, you know, I come from a tradition where like I trained for 14 years and was never allowed to be <laughs> give beginning instruction and meditation. It was so just like managed and gate kept and like, and I show up for this rosary meeting and it's kind of like, do you want to lead a mystery? Like anyone can, can, it was, it felt so like chaos to me. Like, I can't believe that just I can show up for the first time and talk. Anybody can show up for the first time and talk. And it was such a, um, it felt very like internally disruptive. Like I was like, who's in charge? And like, you know, really what are the roles? You're just going to let this person like keep talking about this thing, you know? And it's like, nobody's like intervening. And, um, so it was like internally disruptive and also like very liberating to see like, this works fine actually with nobody gatekeeping, nobody like asking you what your intentions are, you know, you just kind of sort of show what your up. qualifications are, you know, what, that, well, yes. I, I have this degree or I've done these workshops before. Nope. Doesn't matter. Do, doesn't matter. And also just the whole, I remember when I was reading the way of the rose, there's a chapter called, um, something like something about being shallow and deep. And it was just such like, you don't, progress when you pray the rosary. There's no like levels. You don't like attain anything. You don't get better at it. You don't become an expert. And that was so the opposite of the tradition that I trained in, um, that I struggled so much inside of that. It felt sort of very liberating. And, um, and I think, Oh, go finish what you're going to say. No, please go ahead. I was going to say, would this be an opportune moment? I, I would actually love to hear your how you got to that monastery. Cause I don't think we've ever actually gone through that. This is, I mean, thank you for the question. It's actually so um, helpful for my own process of like, you know, digesting and metabolizing my experience to kind of tell the story. Um, you know, I think that storytelling itself is a kind of liturgy, a kind of ritual. Um, and I'm sure we're going to talk a lot more about that. So how I ended up at the monastery was, you know, not, I was living in New York city when nine 11 happened and I was working in the corporate world. And I had kind of this existential spiritual crisis where I was sort of like, okay, I'm going to die. And it could be while I'm like drinking my coffee at my desk. And like, how am I with that? And I was like, I am really not okay with that. Um, and I sort of asked myself, like, am I happy? And I was like, what would that even mean? Like, I, I just had no idea. So I spent the next three years going to different churches and spiritual groups and really, really searching. And at the end of three years, I ended up going to the monastery's city center, um, a temple in, in Brooklyn where I had just moved. I went to a Sunday morning service, which is sort of like the entry point. 
And um, I showed up at the temple. And the first thing that you do at the Sunday service is a liturgy service. And this was the first time that I remember hearing the word liturgy. And that's actually what they call it, like on the schedule. And um, we begin by like doing full prostrations, like your forehead is on the floor. You're kind of like, I guess everybody's bowing and you just bow. And if you didn't bow, people were, the monk was like, please bow. Like, you know, (laughs) there was like, it was not a spectator sport. And then they passed out sutra books and we chanted these sutras. And so here I was in this old building, this former, former funeral home in Brooklyn, which is where the temple was chanting these sutras with this room full of people. And I remember years later, my teacher talking in a retreat about, you know, liturgy could be really hard for people to enter there. And I thought to myself, that was the hook for me. I was sitting, I was well standing there chanting the first service I'd ever chanted. And I remember thinking like, I've been longing for this my whole entire life. It was that communal experience. And then, you know, I moved to the monastery, uh, like a year and a half later and trained for almost 15 years in various liturgical service positions, eventually training as the liturgist, the person who kind of like puts the service together and like works with all the various people who are part of it. And that was probably, that feels like the most profound part of my training that I still carry with me. I consider myself still a liturgist, you know, outside of this tradition and to see how that has like morphed into like not being, not being contained or, and, and I could talk about this all day. So I'm going to try and like tie it together. I remember very distinctly um, when I started doing liturgy, that wasn't just in the meditation hall with everyone else, but doing it by myself in my cabin, having my own altar. That was a very kind of transitional moment. It felt very performative. It felt strange to do it by myself. And I feel like that is where I remember my teacher saying, you know, take it out of the box. And I feel like that was a very powerful teaching for me that like, you know, as the liturgist, I learned, here's the structure of a service and how it works and da, da, da. And then to be able to take those principles under that underlie those steps and, and take them out of the box. And literally, you know, as one example, I consider my whole room that I sort of live and work in to be an altar. Um, So that's kind of a way that that has sort of translated for me. Um, So yeah, so that's kind of how I got into liturgy. And, um, you know, also a part of being the liturgist was chanting, leading the chanting and using my voice in a way that I'd never used it before and having to train for years to be able to sort of do that with some semblance of ease and, um, how powerful that felt to do that. And, and just one final thing I want to say before we sort of pivot to your, to your origin story is I remember very distinctly, um, the day after the 2016 election, turning on the radio at like three in the morning, that's, we would get up early and hearing, you know, the, the phrase president Trump and, um, woof, and going down the hill and sitting 
dawn zazen, you know, like I did every morning with the rest of the residential community and then leading the chanting for the morning service. And I remember while I was chanting, thinking, this is why we do this every day, every day, no matter what is happening. And now, you know, as the world is like continuing to fall apart, you know, liturgy, you know, the ritual of doing certain things every day, regardless of what is happening in the, in the outside world is a great source of comfort and strength to me. And so that's something that I, you know, which now translates into, into praying the rosary every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, thank you. It was so helpful to kind of like tell that story from this place. Um, what about you? Like, do you remember the first time that you heard the word liturgy? Like, were, were you, um, was it literally from the time you were a child, you were sort of just like raised in the church? Like, what was that like for you? Well, you know, I noticed, I, I was really noted when you mentioned your first exposure to the word liturgy. Well, I, I grew up Catholic. My parents were Catholic and I was born in the 1960s, right? My, my upbringing in the church was greatly influenced by the effects of the Second Vatican Council, which, you know, kind of opened things in some ways, changed things, um, notably, you know, mass in English and more inclusive prayers, um, more focus on in participating in the service. And so I was very, I was very, I, I did not get the old traditional catechism. So I didn't have that. What I had was a more 1970s, you know, the name of the school religion book was Life, Love, Joy. <laughs> but you know, we always went to mass and, you know, my mom died when I was a child and I spent several, for several years, several years after her death, I spent a lot of time with my grandma, her mom. And I remember on Good Friday, when I was probably about nine years old, I was probably in about fourth grade, third or fourth grade. My grandma came over and we went up to the parish church because to the service that was, um, there's only one service a day on Good Friday, the day that commemorates the crucifixion of Jesus. And we were, we were late, which was fine. They have in the, and the service has a liturgy has three different parts. And one of them is where you go up and venerate the cross. And that can be done in different ways. In this particular case, there were crucifixes on tables at the end of each aisle. And so you go up and you like kiss it or you do something. And I thought that was kind of weird, but it made an impression on me. Like, oh, this is a gesture you make, you know? And so as I grew up, I think, I think there must've been something innate in me because I don't, I can't pinpoint anything that made me interested in these topics, this, you know, this type of subject area and practice area. And so, but when I was in high school, my, my, I, the parish we went to was, I don't know, just an average parish. It wasn't anything unique about it, but there was a parish at the Jesuit university in Cincinnati and people, somebody, somehow I knew people who went there and I heard they had like really nice music or something, something drew me there, but I was 17 years old. I had my driver's license. I would drive. It was only 15 minutes away. It wasn't like a long drive, but I would go by myself to this mass on Sunday morning. That was, you know, families and all, but they sang all the verses. That was one of the hallmarks of this parish. They sang all the verses and everything was very intentional. The gestures were not rote the way I, I experienced them in other circumstances. 
And they referred to the mass as liturgy. That is where I first heard the word liturgy, whereas everywhere else it was usually just mass, at least in, in my impression, I did not hear that word. And so I later went to college at Xavier University and attended mass there. And then after I was out of school, I attended mass there and joined the parish and that's where we raised our children. And it, it, the word liturgy was just part, like that was a hallmark of that community. It was something that everyone valued. And in the 1970s, when um, the documents came out post Vatican II about how the mass should be done, the parish convened, the, the then pastor convened, you know, a group of people to study them and implement them. So there was just a lot of buy-in, a lot of unity around um, making the mass very vibrant and having lots of participation and roles for women more so than elsewhere. Um, inclusive language, you know, non-male non uh, based language. And so this was all that I knew. I mean, that's, that, I got really deep into that as I got, Joe and I got married and we had children, we raised them there. And the, the cycle of feasts, the reading, like it just all became very, um, it was just a great container for, it felt like the right container for life. And we had a community of people and I, you know, I did all kinds of ministries. I let, organized people to do ministries. I uh, preached a few times at prayer services. Um, I was on lots of organizational committees and um, what was I gonna say? Oh, and we did things at home. Like I, I began to, I became very interested in how can we make this real in our lives and not just wrote. And so I read a lot of different things and we would have altars with symbols of the season in the house. And, uh, and so it was just a really, it was very rich. And I, I identify I still, the, the word liturgy has a, has a resonance for me. Uh, and I, I think I may have noted, I've noted somewhere along the way that you use that term. And I'm like, oh, I like that word. I haven't heard that word in a while. Um, so that's kind of where I, that was my connection. Oh my gosh. There's so much there. I'm really, um, the image of, um, kissing the cross that is so, um, intimate, you know, so intimate. Um, it's but really in contrast later at the, at the Jesuit parish, rather than having individual little crucifixes at the end of each aisle it was more of a circular church. Um, they had a very large wooden crucifix that they brought out into the center and everybody came up and you could do whatever you wanted. You could put your hands on, you could hug it, you could kneel down. You know, and, and it was very moving and people would go up in groups with their family or friends. And it was, that's the con that's, that's actually a really evocative, you know, a clear example of what I mean by intention and the symbol, let the symbol be very present as opposed to, you know, the utilitarian, it's quicker if you have four crucifixes at each at the end of each aisle and people process up. <laughs> right. I mean, God, there's so much there. Um, you know, even the word veneration, like to venerate, you know, and the different forms that that took, like, you know, um, in, in the sort of early church that you were attending, it was sort of, you know, kissing the cross and this later church that you attended, there was a variety of ways that you could do that, but just the whole, you know, you, you've been talking about it in terms of intention, but, you know, the idea of, um, veneration or reverence, or, you know, these are like, these are things that I feel like I, 
this sort of um, intentionality feels very tied into my experience of both my religious training that I did at the monastery and my understanding of liturgy now kind of more broadly. And, you know, just the idea of living an intentional life and the way that even this example of venerating the cross is like having a relationship with quote unquote inanimate objects, you know, and a relationship with, um, you know, a seemingly inert object, which I, I am, you know, am looking forward to talking about with you in, in all episodes about the way that I think ritual and liturgy disrupts that objectification of, you know, the quote unquote outside world. Um, but just to have a context for actually practicing that, I love that you actually brought that into your home in the form of like having altars set up and just the way you talk about it as a container for life of like observing cycles and seasons, which is another thing that I think that ritual and liturgy is so you know, powerful for in a culture, in a larger culture, where I think there's a real um, poverty of ritual and liturgy, never mind veneration, reverence, or, you know, a practice of intimacy with um, the quote unquote, you know, inanimate objects and, and so on and so forth. I mean, I just think I had in no... The- yeah. In the Catholic tradition, there is a term, you know, the, we have the seven sacraments, you know, that were instituted by Christ and, you know, are, are very specified, but there's also a term called sacramentals. And those are items that have a holy purpose. They can be anything, you know, it's like, like a rosary actually is a sacramental or a chalice or, you know, and I, I really resonated with that word. Cause I find like my things that I have that were my grandparents. Like I have a tea set that belonged to a great aunt or, you know, those all resonate for me. And that, that, that my then tradition recognized that fed me and that was like supported me. And I think, you know, this sort of larger part or another aspect of what we're talking about is like, you know, the Catholic church, we could say many, many, many things about the Catholic church and, you know, or any patriarchal religious institution. I mean, I was in a patriarchal religious tradition as well, you know, and I think that what so stimulated us to have this conversation is that, you know, to be able to sort through the sort of problematic complexities of these traditions to, draw out and keep the thing that's really um, so helpful and enlivening and, you know, give so much meaning um, to life. So, you know, instead of kind of throwing away the whole tradition to be able to um, kind of extract these really, um, you know, precious um, frameworks and understandings and, and pieces of things, you know, um, when you were talking about sacramentals, I love that by the way, um, you know, what makes an object a sacramental, you know, there's what the church says, but then there's also kind of like how we in our own life can see certain objects as, as sacred. And it made me think of, um, you know, it, 
my Zen training, it was a very patriarchal, it is a very patriarchal tradition. And yet there are these kind of moments of like total magical animist sort of, um, pieces that come in. And there was, there was, um, a ceremony that the teachers would do when a new altar image would be installed on an altar. And it was called an eye-opening ceremony. And, um, you know, I, when, when the altar attendant would like clean the altars, there was a way you would cover the head of the altar image and take it off and like, you know, da, da, da. but for the eye-opening ceremony, they, I can't remember all the pieces of it, but part of it is that they would take a brush and they would actually paint the eyes onto the statue during, I mean, you know, and like literally open the eyes of the altar image and like, like would there be paint it. on the brush or just like a dry brush that, you know, symbolically open the eyes. I could never really tell if it was just water or super watered down ink. Like I would look at the statues and be like, it doesn't look like that. Like, I don't know what they were doing, but it was definitely, those were, you know, the kind of moments where it felt like, you know, that feels like something very kind of um, ancient and kind of magical, like understanding that there is a I don't know, spirit that lives inside this altar image. And, um, you know, just the idea of activating an altar. I remember how many people I trained to be altar attendants to, to, you know, take care of the altars during meditation retreats and sort of, you know, the number of times that I sort of under that I would um, explain the elements of an altar, you know, you light the candle that activates the altar. And it's just sort of, there is something very, something very valuable about the kind of immersive residential training that I received is that, you know, I feel like I absorbed so much just almost by osmosis. It wasn't like mm-hmm. someone sat me down and was like, okay, here are the elements. It was just like, you kind of learn it as you do it. And I think, you know, the years that you spend inside of your, when you really spend a long time inside of a tradition, certain things can become so internalized and, um, can become really useful then because then they can translate into, you know, that we still have access to that outside of the institutional setting. I think, I think I resonate completely with what you've just described. Um, but in terms, I would add that the activating the altar and, and the, and the, what that might create around the energy of that space. It's also inside. It's what it's doing for like the making of the gesture, what it does for you. And I know, I think we will get into this more in the future too, but the idea that in a tradition, which I think by its very nature is patriarchal. I mean, I think that's the rub um, is that the gesture we're speaking for myself. I was so ingrained that the gestures had to be the gestures. There was like the library of gestures that were created and approved, but actually any gesture can activate a space or ourselves or both. And it can be extremely spontaneous. That has been the revelation of my spiritual life. I am like tingling over here. Just hearing that like, yes, I mean, I feel like that could be its whole own episode, but I think it will be just just the idea that like, you know, you learn a form and they're, you know, and it's easy to think that the power is in the form, 
And it it is, it's not that it's not, but what you're talking about this, that a spontaneous gesture, and really, I guess maybe to kind of like round out this whole, like how we came to be having this conversation is I feel like you have, or I, I have observed in you a real, um, well, I guess I'll just say you made a social media post somewhat recently about making a move um, with your husband from from the place you had been living for many, many years into a new place. And you posted this picture of yourself sort of hugging the corner of, of a building and sort of the caption was um, something along the lines of like, you know, it's important to mark transitions. And, and I remember putting in the comments, like, it looks like a ritual to me. And I kept thinking about that post because that to me encapsulated the, the very grounded nature, the very spontaneous, creative, useful nature of ritual and liturgy. It was such a perfect example of like, what is ritual and liturgy for? It's for like marking transitions. Why is that important? Like that could be a whole conversation we can have in another episode. And that the gesture that you made was something that anyone could think of by themselves. I mean, maybe they wouldn't think of it because we don't think about marking transitions, you know, in the culture, but it was such a like, like, um, completely open, completely accessible, completely non like religious institution example of what a ritual can be and how powerful it can be. And I, and I sort of saw that and I was like, okay, we need to be, you know, having these conversations, I think, because you, that just seems to live inside of you so naturally. What you mirror, you're mirroring back to me about the ritual aspect of that gesture made it all the more meaningful to me. It was very spontaneous. My husband and I had gone to do the final, like leave the keys and make sure everything was gone. And we were in a little bit of a hurry because we had to get somewhere else. And, and we had done a couple of, we took a picture at the front door or doing some selfies and none of them were, it wasn't really like speaking to me. And we were all, we were walking toward the car. And all of a sudden I was like, I need to hug the house. Like, I don't know where this came from. So I literally, I'm like, oh, I want a picture of this, please. And so I, I did that. I hugged the corner of the front of the house. And I want to tell you, I can still conjure the bottle. It, it felt like the absolute benediction on our 19 years there, the decision to move, the relinquishing of so many possessions because we moved, you know, reduced our space. And it really helped me. I have had a minimum and I would, I did some things like that along the way. Cause it was a drawn out process. When we left the house, the, when it was going on the market, I spoke to the house. I said out loud, Joe was already in the car and I stood in the kitchen and I said, I cried. And I said, house, you know, dear house, we, we have done our very best to make you shine. We, you know, please attract the next family who will love you, you know, and all. And I, I spoke, I think I spoke to the trees in the backyard too. Like, and these all helped me. Like I have had, a, this has been the smoothest transition I've had in my life. And it's been a huge one. I mean, and I think, I think in my Catholic mindset, I would have thought of a gesture, but I would have thought I needed someone special to lead it. Or if I didn't have someone special to lead it, I needed somebody's script, you know, blessing for leaving a house with scripture, pet, you know, like, and there's nothing wrong with that. If that's meaningful to someone, go for it. But 
it's not necessary. And that's, that's just where I'm the edge that I'm loving talking to you about, like where that moment of it comes up. If you give it space, it comes up. What can I do? And it, it doesn't have to be a whole, like what we think of as a ritual or a liturgy. It can be very simple and very small. I love that. I mean, and Oh my God, there's so much there. When you were talking about talking to the house and talking to the trees, I got like emotional. I think that it's just such a great example that liturgy and ritual gives us an opportunity to be in relationship with life, you know, Mm, to be in relationship, you know, with observation, you know, that a house isn't just some inert pile of bricks, you know, it's like, you know, a tree isn't just some object in our backyard. It's our there are relations, you know, that we are in relationship with our, the space that we're in with the land that we live on. And I think that ritual and liturgy gives us an opportunity to experience that, not just to kind of like name and acknowledge it, but to actually have the experience of to that, embody it, to feel it, to feel it, and to bring us back kind of where we started. I would also add that two years of praying the rosary has given me a my, my ritual awareness is more attuned to cycles that endings happen and then new beginnings happen. It, it's the circularity of time as opposed to an endless linear time. And that, I think that constant reminder through the cycle of the mysteries every three days that things end and things begin is, it's been, it's like a stream kind of wearing away rock like slowly like i think my my awareness has shifted around time to be more comfortable with things ending and the, aware that new beginnings will come oh my and God. not that things aren't sad you know that's not to be a bypassing in any way of pain and loss but to simply be in that bigger space of these this is how life is as opposed to i alone am experiencing these things I love that. I love that. And, you know, it's definitely not bypassing. I mean, for me in the sense that, you know, um, in the way the rose, we pray the joyful mysteries one day, the sorrowful mysteries, the next day, the glorious mysteries, the next day, and then repeat. And so, you know, the sorrowful mysteries are coming up like every three days we're praying through the sorrows of empire and the overculture. And so there's no, you know, it's like everything's included in that. And when you were sort of talking about like, you know, the rosary putting you in touch with those cycles. It's almost like this sort of like, um, pool that like you, you know, ritual and liturgy lets you kind of dip your, your hand or your foot into that, into that sort of swirling and kind of really partake of it in, in a way. And, and I also think that, um, my experience with the way of the rose and leaving, you know, leaving the monastery, um, and being, you know, a lot in reaction to, you know, in the, in the, you know, years since I've left, I'm still going through that process. What you're saying about like, you don't need a script, you don't need an authority. And I think that's so much what in the, in, 
you know, institutionalized religion and the overculture really wants us to be dependent on authorities. You know, it's, it's a form of social control and, you know, that that happens in our spiritual life where we become sort of disempowered and cut off from our own imagination and our own creative impulses, you know, that you could feel that you needed to do something when you were leaving the house and that you allowed that gesture to kind of arise spontaneously and that you actually did it. You didn't just like think it in your mind and keep going, but you actually kind of made it happen. And I think what you're saying is really important. It's not that having a structured liturgy or ritual or, you know, following a sort of um, step-by-step of something is wrong. Um, But, and also I think that, and this is something that I know we're going to talk about a lot, and I just kind of want to surface it right here is that for me, the more personal a, a ritual is, the more it draws on my own personal associations and symbols and colors and sounds and feelings that feel important to me, the more power that ritual has. And, you know, I say that understanding that like, there is a power to communal liturgy. I felt it the first time I was at that service. It's very powerful to do something together with other people. Praying the rosary is very powerful doing that with other people. And, you know, that there's a kind of empowerment that comes from, you know, trusting our, my own inclinations, my own um, preferences and desires and things that feel powerful and pleasurable to me and, and that are, you know, seeing it as a creative process, that those are the rituals and liturgies that like, exactly as you said, that you had tried some different things, but they weren't quite hitting it until you, you know, thought of sort of hugging the house and that that gesture kind of encompassed it. And, and I really look forward to sort of talking more about how, how does a person do that? I mean, I think the fact that you and I were inside of traditions for so long, um, in a way, makes it harder in some ways and easier in other ways to generate that more personal um, relationship to it. Um, but I think that it's something that's available to anyone. I think it's just a way of, um, opening one's attention or or directing one's attention or asking oneself a question about what is important to me? What do I want? Um, what, what transitions do I want to mark? What cycles do I want to observe? So, so yeah, I mean, I feel like we've hit on, yeah. And what brings me pleasure? What do I enjoy? Like what activities, what, what anything do I enjoy that could become a ritual of marking something? I mean, we're going to be talking a lot about pleasure. Yes. A lot about pleasure, because I think that that is not something that I ever, ever heard about in my formal religious training. And, um, I don't know about, I I don't know about what it was like for you. It was certainly not an explicit part of the tradition. I would say in my liturgical life at my parish, I, I did have a lot of pleasure for a very long time. It was quite enjoyable to be there and to be among the people and to engage in the rituals and things. Um, but the larger flavor, I mean, Catholicism is not known for encouraging pleasure in it for its own sake or, you know, but I just have to tell this one story. I think that I've actually told you this story before, but when I was, um, when I was a monk, we used to do, um, meditate, silent meditation retreats in Buffalo. And the space that they used for that was this, um, 
a place where they used to train priests. And so we were inside of this room and we were sort of setting up. And I realized that for the whole weekend, I was going to be looking at this giant wooden crucifix with a spotlight on it. And I thought to myself, wow, the Catholics really have that suffering thing on lock. Like, you know, I thought the Buddhists had it with like the first noble truth is life is suffering, but like looking at that image for a whole weekend, I was like, what effect does this have on one's psyche and spirit and soul and mind and body to meditate on this image? Um, and I mean, there are many things we could say about that, but it was really right. intense. Um, yeah. <laughs> Not to sort of make white, but also, you know, it was, it was really well, something coming from with a lack of familiarity. I can see where that would be extremely <laughs> like arresting, shall we say? Yes. Yes. Um, so I think we've done a fairly good job. Of- I think we, we are, we've come full circle and I think that's always a good place to think about ending. Great. Is there anything else that you feel like we left out or that we, that you wanted to add before we close? I don't think so. Great. This was as much fun as I imagined it was going to be. Oh my God. It was fab. So we're going to close each of us talking about a favorite practice that we are doing right now to either ground ourselves or nurture ourselves. And do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Uh, Why don't you go first? So, um, a practice, especially this time of year, it's May here in the Catskills. So it is like spring in full force. I mean, it is just unbelievable. Um, and I have a sit spot by the Creek and, um, I go there and I find that, you know, after looking at a screen all day or, um, just being inside a lot to go sit there. And last night I sat under the moonlight and listened to the frogs, um, right next to the Creek. And it was, you know, that's really helps me remember, um, what my life is. So yeah, that's what I've been up to lately. How about you? Well, our new place overlooks the Ohio river. So I am having a a view kind of, um, I'm, I'm having to actually find my new spots, you know, like what's, what is the rhythm going to be here? And so I get a lot of grounding from, I have a little um, stretching and energy healing kind of routine that I do many mornings. I don't do it absolutely every morning, but I look out the window and the sun is coming up and I'm stretching and feeling my body on the earth. And I just, it really is a great way to begin the day. I feel like if I don't do that, I start off too fast and then I burn out. But if I start the day with just a very quick little bit of body awareness, then I'm kind of on the ground. Like I'm going to be a little more focused during the day. I love that. I feel like morning rituals are so important. That could be an episode. Oh, you, you better believe it will be. Um, Peg, thank you so much. This was delicious. And I hope those of you who are still listening that you enjoyed our sort of, this is our usual kind of juicy conversation that we have and um, hope that you enjoyed it and that you'll be back for more. And um, yeah, thank you so much, Peg. Thank you, Shay. And if anyone listening would like to respond to either one of us, um, please reach out on social media. Yes. And all of our links to all of our things that we do, you can check out in the show notes and um, okay. Until next time. 
Thanks.